Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a physical therapist explains why some people who survive a coronavirus infection may require rehabilitative therapy. Most of these patients who are going through recovery experience deficits related to long hospital stays ultimately will lead to functional impairments. A team from Upstate and Syracuse University discuss how COVID-19 death rates are significantly higher for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And a psychologist talks about helping kids cope with stress. The best thing we can do is talk to our kids. Parents are often scared they're going to say the wrong thing, but we know that if a child is already thinking about something, it's the not talking about it that makes it seem that it's not okay that they're having those thoughts. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today on a pandemic special episode, We'll explore why people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who contract COVID-19 have a higher death rate. Then, a child psychologist talks about helping kids cope with trauma and stress. But first, a physical therapist explains the role of rehabilitation in coronavirus care. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Medical experts are still learning about the novel coronavirus and its effects on the body. Today, I'm talking with a doctor of physical therapy who helps people after they've recovered from a COVID-19 infection. Zachary Boswell is from Upstate's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Boswell. Hi, thank you for having me. Why is physical rehabilitation necessary for people who were hospitalized with COVID? That's a great question. Most of these patients who are going through recovery after a COVID-19 infection um, experience deficits in multiple body systems. Um, So related to long hospital stays and critical effects, the way our heart and lungs function, the way our muscles work, ultimately will lead to functional impairments. Um, So it's important for physical medicine and rehab Um, from physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech and language pathology um, to see these patients to ensure uh, appropriate progress towards their functional baseline. So it's more, is it because of the damage the virus has done or the damage of being dormant, like laying in a hospital bed for so long, or a combination? It's definitely a combination. So from how we understand the virus affects the lungs, um, it directly affects the body's ability to absorb oxygen into the bloodstream and then expel carbon dioxide. So um, the hypoxic respiratory failure certainly has an impact on patients' ability to, uh, to move, function. However, like you mentioned, spending a long time in bed for our patients who are critically ill in the ICU, um, Prolonged bed rest can lead to muscle wasting or, or weakness, muscle atrophy, um, but it also secondarily can affect other body systems and organs, your kidneys, your liver, um, digestion, um, which will ultimately have an impact on your ability to tolerate activity um, and do those daily tasks that are necessary. So how long can someone be confined to bed before they're going to need to have some help like learning to move around again? It all depends, Um, but we've seen deficits in function as early as a few days in bed. Um, Some studies have shown um, muscle weakness can can develop within the first week of immobility, even in young, healthy patients. Um, So these these impairments can, can develop pretty early on in a hospital stay. Um, and then add in the effects of the sedatives or pain medications that patients require for comfort um, and other interventions that, that also secondarily can have an impact on normal function. Well, you mentioned um, breathing and the impact on the, uh, of the virus on a person's ability to breathe. Is some of physical therapy and rehabilitation 
relearning how to breathe properly? Absolutely. Um, a lot of times when we feel short of breath, we tend to hyperventilate. Um, we start using what we call accessory muscles, muscles in our neck and our, our traps to, to try to force more air in, suck more air in and, and blow it out forcefully. However, this is very inefficient. Um, and what you end up doing is blowing off too much of the carbon dioxide. Um, and then that can lead to abnormalities in our blood gases and chemistry and whatnot. And actually is a vicious cycle, which leads to that sense of shortness of breath. So a big part of our interventions is retraining respiratory rate, um, encouraging a slow, um, deep breath for inhale and exhale to normalize that ratio, as well as recruiting more of the diaphragm, um, which is one of our primary inhalation muscles. It helps push our stomach contents down and, and expand the lungs. Um, and without using that, especially for our patients who have been mechanically ventilated for an extended period of time, it takes some, some practice and some time to, to re-coordinate proper um, inhalation and, and, and exhalation. So it absolutely is, is important. Well, you mentioned hypoxia, and that's a lack of oxygen circulation, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the disease process? I guess my question is, do people recover that or do you help them recover that ability to circulate oxygen? That's a good question. Um, and a lot of the recovery is inherently due to the body, body's ability to, to overcome the virus and, and some of these effects. Um, as a physical therapist, I don't directly heal anybody. Um, however, through my expertise in movement, um, anatomy and interventions that can help promote progress towards return to function, we can enhance um, the patient's ability to recover um, either more expeditiously or more completely by improving the environment that they're working in um, and improving the patient's ability to manage their own conditions. Well, with this being such a new virus, how do you as a physical therapist develop protocols for how to take care of these patients? It's a great question. And it's been an ever evolving situation. Early on, without understanding much about the virus, we had to look at how patients were presenting. Um, a lot of experts across the country from all rehab therapies have colluded and um, come to a consensus of what is this virus's presentation most similar to? Um, we hear it referred to as a pneumonia, but it's atypical pneumonia. Typically, pneumonia is unilateral um, inflammation of, of lung tissue. However, however, the way the virus affects the lungs, we see leakiness in the capillaries around the alveolar space, which impedes the body's ability to get oxygen from the lungs to the bloodstream. So it's not typical in that presentation. So our normal Interventions for a pneumonia would include airway, airway clearance techniques, um, positioning to help with secretion management. However, these patients have dry coughs because it's not a mucus issue, it's an airway, uh, air gas exchange issue. And then we have the issue of our patients who become critically ill, they develop ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, there's a lot of evidence, and um, both from a medical but from a rehab therapy perspective, on ARDS management. So, from a therapy perspective, I've relied heavily on um, information regarding ARDS um, and pulmonary rehab, um, but trying to move more towards um, encouraging respiratory techniques, energy conservation techniques, um, and progressive mobility as tolerated. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with physical therapist Zachary Boswell. So recognizing that every patient is individual, um, in general, what does physical therapy consist of for someone who's recovered in the hospital from COVID? Every encounter is going to begin with an, a, a thorough examination. Um, we'll review their chart for their medical history, their imaging, um, any laboratory findings that can help um, give us a sense of, of the acuity of the illness or what might be going on specifically. Um, we talk with the nurse and the physicians as well. 
Um, we'll look at their range of motion, strength, coordination, sensation, um, cognition, orientation, like, like most professionals would in the hospital. We'll also take a look at their functional mobility. And within that, we'll look at how they get out of bed or how they transfer to standing position if they're able. Um, and if they can do that, are they able to walk? Um, now, within looking at how they're moving, we take a look at their tolerance. We're watching their vitals. We're watching their um, their response, how, they're, how they tell us they're feeling. From all of that information, we can identify impairments which lead to functional limitations or difficulty in doing a specific task. From there, we'll establish our plan of care to address those impairments, whether it's we need to work on strengthening, whether it's we need to work on improving cognition while we're doing certain tasks, um, coordinating those breathing techniques we mentioned earlier to help with energy conservation and to help with ventilation. Um, it, it really, it, it's an all encompassing approach. So that way we can capture every possible contributing factor that's resulting in this functional limitation. So is it possible someone might not need physical therapy or, or may not need it for very long? Absolutely. So we have seen patients um, who, right off the bat, um, we see they're managing their repositioning um, on their own with assistance from nursing um, under a physician order. Um, something we see with these patients that's really beneficial, for example, is a prone positioning or, or moving onto your belly. For those patients who are doing that on their own, um, their condition is being medically managed, optimized in that way. The patient just needs time for the body to heal and recover. We might not go into that room. We might not see that patient. Um, we have seen some patients who, despite a positive test, they might not have any changes in their vitals. Their heart rate might be normal. Their blood pressure might be normal. Their breathing might be normal. They might just have a little bit of a low oxygen reading, for example. There's not much from a skilled perspective that I am going to contribute to that situation. As long as the nurses are educating, the physicians are educating on activity and repositioning, um, we might just be kind of on the sidelines and, and looking from afar in case there is a need that arises. Um, but that being said, the majority of the patients who are sick enough to come to the hospital typically benefit from at least an evaluation to identify if there is a need for continued services. Now, what about a COVID-19 patient who was never hospitalized, who recovered at their home? I mean, they may have had a... Mm -hmm really bad course of this. They may have been bedridden for, you know, a, several days or weeks. Might they mm. need physical therapy? It's, it's, it's very possible. There's potential for that. Um, if they notice there is a deficit from their, for, from their baseline, um, say even for patients who normally don't go out of their house very much, but um, they're noticing a little bit of shortness of breath or difficulty getting from one room to the other, or they find themselves compensating and maybe they're not going up and down their stairs as often as they were prior. Um, they're not able to stand and do a full sink of dishes. They have to break it up through um, throughout the day. Um, these are all signs, these compensatory strategies, signs that there's something affecting your ability to do something you normally would. And in these situations, it would definitely be worth talking to your primary care provider, um, or if you are familiar with a specific uh, physical therapist in your area, um, contacting their office to see to see go about getting um, an evaluation and see if there's something that we might be able to help with. Well, I wanted to ask you also about uh, some of the chronic impairments that people may have after they recover, because I read an article about a marathon runner who was hospitalized, and as he recovered, his doctors told him they don't think he'll run again. So there's some long-term possibly consequences to this, right? We've seen in the literature coming from across the world, even from our country itself, that there is potential for some long-term consequences, um, negative uh, effects from this virus that can impact people across the board. Um, they might have issues with oxygenating. Um, so that hypoxia we talked about, um, I've heard of anecdotally at least one individual who, um, quite young, but even 45 days after initial positive test was still saturating um, in the high 80s, low 90s, a previous, an individual who previously didn't need any oxygen. Um, and that is, uh, when you said saturation, that should be closer to 100? 
Ideally, 95 to 100 is normal. Um, for our patients who are experiencing um, difficult breathing secondary to COVID-19 infection, um, the goal is 92 to 96%. Um, and that's just the amount of oxygen that's bound to the, the red blood cells in our blood. Um, ideally, we would be able to, to, to see specifically how much oxygen is in their blood. And many times in the hospital, we'll get an arterial blood gas for that. Um, but this is just talking about the, the probe that goes on the finger or the ear that, that lights up red and, and measures how much um, saturation uh, of oxygen there is peripherally. Um, but even mentioning, uh, back to the, the runner who you mentioned, I read that article as well. And, and though it's not as, as common or widespread, um, we're seeing deficits in, in people who are previously very high level functioning, um, very fit individuals, um, but we don't quite understand why it's affecting some people more than others, and even a healthy population like like the marathon and runner you mentioned. I think that information um, for prognosis or, or trying to figure out what somebody's potential is for recovery, that will come um, when we're able to collect retrospective data, kind of looking back um, to be able to better identify what are some of these variables contributing to why this person was seemingly asymptomatic, no issues at all, um, and this person who um, may or may not have been healthier at baseline is has been affected uh, much more so than than the the prior. So, well, you mentioned occupational therapists and speech language uh, therapists. This these are also um, some specialties that patients may need, right? Absolutely. Um, so occupational therapy um, is uh, another segment of our, our rehab therapies, very important for patients. Um, their focus is primarily on activities of daily living. Um, they are specialists when it comes to cognition, assessment, and intervention, vision. Um, all of those important things, those occupations, um, people think mean a job, but what are those duties that you have to do on a daily basis to take care of yourself? Um, whether it's finances, medications, driving, um, or um, to help others. And then speech and language pathology is extremely important. Um, again, all encompassing the speech and language, but also cognition. Um, these patients who have required mechanical ventilation, especially those for prolonged periods of time, it's really important for a speech and language pathologist to evaluate them um, and recommend further examination or specific intervention to help these patients be able to speak, um, swallow, and start taking nutrition in a safe manner. We don't want them aspirating, for example, or taking fluid into the lungs. Um, we don't want uh, we, we don't want any secondary complications from doing what we would assume would be a, a good thing, giving them food really early on. Um, and they are the specialists to to help recommend um, progression in diet and progression in, in certain things like that. Well, thank you to physical therapist Zachary Boswell from Upstate's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. The death rate from COVID-19 is higher for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is HealthLink on Air. The COVID-19 death rates are higher for patients who have disabilities, according to a new study. Today, I'm speaking with two of the researchers about their work, Dr. Margaret Turk, who's from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and also Pediatrics at Upstate, and Dr. Scott Landis from the Aging Studies Institute in the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Let's start with the background for your study. What made you want to investigate the death rates for patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Well, uh, in the early part of the pandemic, when information was coming out about what the risks were related to uh, severe outcomes, uh, one of them was older age, but the other was 
uh, a number of health conditions. And in fact, people with disability have many of those health conditions. So hypertension, diabetes, uh, pulmonary issues, cardiovascular diseases. And uh, it became clear that the data that was out there was very generalized and there wasn't really anything that looked at different populations. And again, people with disability uh, really have many of those conditions that lead to a, a bad outcome should you become infected. So um, I was able to um, work with colleagues in the area, uh, Dr. Landis, whom, whom you'll, you'll meet, who has a, a long history of looking at the issues related to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and Dr. Margaret Formica, who is in the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, who has uh, excellent talents in, uh, in helping looking at epidemiology. And, and the reason we chose IDD, intellectual and developmental disabilities, is because this is a rather large segment of a uh, disability population. Um, and so uh, we felt that it would be important to really begin to look at the issues related to disability and COVID-19 in working with people with IDD. Uh, people with IDD, if I hear you correctly, they have a higher risk of having complications if they contract COVID-19. Do they also have a higher risk of contracting COVID-19? Well, as, as far as we know with this data, they, they don't. But of course, that's something that is, uh, is worth exploring. Um, but uh, as of yet, we, we really don't, don't know that. But they certainly are at risk for having bad outcomes, severe outcomes, uh, like, like dying. And, and I, Dr. Landis may want to jump in here, but one of the other reasons that we took a look at this population is that people with IDD, uh, for the most part, really are, uh, uh, have some issues related to health access um, and with people really understanding what their health care needs are. And Dr. Landis, that's uh, an area that you've investigated previously, right? Part of this is right place at right time. Dr. Turk and I had just completed um, three studies, actually, NIA-sponsored studies, where we were looking at causes of death among folks with intellectual and developmental disability. One thing we report in those studies is a much higher um, rate of death from pneumonias, which, as we know, is one of the severe complications of COVID-19. So that's one of the things that um, really initiated our concern. But the second thing that Dr. Turk was alluding to is that historically, persons with intellectual and developmental disability in this country have not had as good of access to the healthcare system. And then when they get access to the healthcare system, they're often served by providers who may not have the proper training to know how to um, best work with this population, either via communication or via knowing what the risk factors are. One thing that we show in many of our reports is there are a lot of folks in this population who have swallowing difficulties. And if that's not something that is known by a medical care personnel or by a physician, um, they may not attend to more mild symptomatology of COVID-19 you really have to be aware of in order to make sure that folks don't choke or aspirate or develop pneumonia and pneumonitis. So I think that vulnerability that Dr. Turk was refer is referring to is really important. Um, and it's a current concern that we had going in. And one of the reasons that we we put an early report out saying to folks, you, we really have to be careful because this population may actually have more severe risk from COVID-19. Well, how did you do your study? What data did you draw from? Well, we, we used the uh, Trinetics platform. This is an international platform um, that uh, a number of uh, healthcare centers um, um, use for uh, to, to, for research, to look at uh, health issues with large databases, with large numbers. Um, and uh, we were fortunate that Upstate uh, just recently had uh, gotten access to this. There were, there were two databases, and one was focused mainly on COVID-19. So uh, we were able to look at the data from that platform, uh, which had some limitations because we could only choose certain variables. Um, and we couldn't do a number of, of other uh, uh, analyses we would have wanted to do um, by meaning looking for some causes or what's, what some associations might be. Uh, but it did give us very recent and up-to-date data. So the, the data is from 
uh, January 20th uh, to May 14th. And so we have some, uh, again, uh, up-to-date information and it's, it helped us to really try to look at some comparisons within the group of people who were diagnosed with COVID-19 who had intellectual and developmental disabilities versus those who did not. And what geographic region did you cover? Well, the, uh, the data that we had uh, was uh, supported by 42 healthcare systems. And so upstate was one of them. Uh, it is an international system, but the vast majority of data comes from the United States. And within the US, uh, it's largely from the Northeast and the Midwest. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Margaret Turk from Upstate and Dr. Scott Landis from Syracuse University about the disproportionate death rate from COVID-19 among people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. So please tell us what you found. Well, what we found was that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities actually uh, who became infected with COVID-19 and at earlier ages, and our age groupings were zero to 17, uh, 18 to 74, and then we had an older age group. But within those two younger age groups, people with IDD who had contracted uh, COVID-19, who were diagnosed with COVID-19, in fact, had a higher risk for dying. So they had a higher case fatality risk. Uh, the, the other interesting thing is that uh, what we expected to see and did see was that people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities across all ages had uh, those uh, concerning health conditions, those comorbidities such as hypertension, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, respiratory diseases, across all ages. We really weren't able because of the platform uh, to look at what the causality might be, meaning what what may what associations may have been with having those. But what we did find was that again, the younger age group, and interestingly, the older age group uh, were just like the people who were diagnosed with COVID without uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. So this was a a, a little bit of a different. Uh, way of looking at uh, the trends among ages than what we see in the typical population. Dr. Landis, did the findings surprise you? I think they, they didn't surprise me, they disturbed me. Um, because um, something that Dr. Turk and I talk about frequently is that there are the way that we have structured services for folks with intellectual and developmental disability in US society, and it is distinct from other countries, um, really means that a lot of folks receive services within congregate care settings. So they're in residential group homes where you may have between four and 14 residents in addition to uh, rotation of staff, staff members coming through. And so in some ways, it's, it's a population, a portion of this population is living in settings similar to what you might see in a small nursing home. And as we know, COVID-19 rates have really taken off there. And so we had, uh, along with the concern we had about comorbidities, we had gone into this concern that because of the higher percentage of folks in this population who are living in current settings, that we would actually see the higher rates, which like Dr. Turk said, we can't look at causality. We weren't able to test for or control for whether someone did or did not live in a congregate setting, but the results do show higher case fatality rates for this population. Well, on the healthlinkonair.org website, we'll post a link to your study, but in it, you have a number for the number of excess deaths, and I wanted to ask you to sort of explain how you arrive at that number. Yeah, we came up this by extrapolating from the case fatality rates. And the case fatality rates are looking at the rate of death only among the people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And so what we found, in, for example, among those who are 18 to 74, is among those with intellectual and developmental disability who died from COVID-19, 4.5% actually died within the next period of time that we measured, whereas among those without intellectual and developmental disability, 2.7% died. And so if you think about if 100,000 folks with intellectual and developmental disability are diagnosed with COVID-19, which 
we know is quite possible due to the size of this population, we would expect 4,500 of them to die if these numbers that we report in the study actually hold true going forward. Whereas among those without intellectual and developmental disability, we would only expect 2,700 to die, which leads us to saying there will be an excess of 1,800 deaths, which in our mind is, is not really acceptable. We don't know how low that number could go, but our contention is that if we devoted more attention to this population and possibly more funding for the services they receive, that we might be able to reduce these number of excess deaths. So I know your study didn't get into this per se, but knowing about this disparity, um, what do you think we need to be doing, uh, you know, to help people with IDD during this pandemic? Are we doing something wrong that's hurting them or is there something else we could do that would help? Well, I, I think that initially uh, there was uh, uh, minimal information that, that people could go on. Uh, so I, I think people made uh, uh, probably the best decisions they could at the time based on, on limited information. So at the time, remember that uh, we, th there was a shortage of uh, protective equipment. So even something as simple as, as a surgical loop mask that you wear behind your ears um, uh, wasn't really available. And that's also true uh, for the testing. Uh, there wasn't a lot of available testing. Uh, here in the central New York area, we, we really had uh, quite a wait to be able to uh, get enough uh, testing. Um, so uh, again, I think we've learned an awful lot from, from this. Um, you'll also remember, and Dr. Landis referred to this, that uh, there were significant issues related to nursing homes, and we, we found that downstate in, in uh, New York City. Uh, again, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities will usually need some type of support, if not full-time, then some portion of time, which indicates that they're going to have close contact with people who, will, who need to support and, and help them uh, to be functional. And uh, it's many of those people who also did not uh, understand some of the just the common things that we, we call now very commonplace. So hand hygiene, which we should always do, um, and and now the the uh, uh, protective equipment that uh, will be uh, commonplace at least for for a while. So I think I think we've we've learned, um, but we learned a little bit late at the onset. We we as a society in the U.S. really haven't had a lot of experience with large pandemics as they have in other parts of the world. So uh, we were not terribly well prepared. And, and again, as Dr. Landis has pointed out, it's, uh, it's unclear how much healthcare providers really understand about people with disability, really understand what happens in group homes or what kind of assistance uh, is available to them. So uh, hopefully we will be much more prepared. There'll be better preparedness as, as time goes on. Um, CDC has uh, now put out some guidelines, some guidance, uh, but that was a long time in coming. So uh, I think we're catching up. But uh, uh, again, I, I, I think I think it's lessons learned that we should not forget this time. So, Dr. Landis, can you tell us how you're continuing your research on this topic? Yeah, we currently are working on another project where we have data from residential group home providers that are providing services for folks with intellectual and developmental disability in the state of New York. And we're examining COVID outcomes among those who live in these group homes and comparing them to kind of state um, outcomes to see whether there's increased risk. And I mean, we're, we'll put this paper out within the next week or so, but what we're finding is that um, there actually are increased case fatality rates among this group home population as well. And one thing that Dr. Turkett alluded to that, I mean, I've been talking to some of these providers as, as we work with this data, and this evidence is obviously anecdotal, um, but they were telling stories that early on during this pandemic, and even some recently, that their employees were having to ask community members for donations of PPE just so that they could go into work and do their job well. And that's, I think that is a policy concern that, that I have is that while the state did a decent job um, up front, with prioritizing PPE for hospitals and nursing homes, it has never, 
even till today, um, given priority to these residential group homes. They still are having to bargain to get this PPE. And so I think if we're really going to attend to the needs of this population, we're going to have to treat the facilities in which they live very similar to the way that we treat nursing homes. Realize that they need the same priority and they need the same resources in order to ensure that this population stays safe during this time. One other thing is, is that people with, with intellectual and developmental disabilities uh, really need to access this information in a, in a nice way as well. And we, we should not forget that we need to help educate them as well. Well, I want to thank both of you for bringing this to light. Thank you to Upstate's Dr. Margaret Turk from Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Syracuse University's Dr. Scott Landis from the Maxwell School's Aging Studies Institute. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, helping kids cope with stress. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our children may be struggling with an array of intense, confusing, and frightening emotions during this time. Here to talk with me about how the COVID-19 pandemic and the protests going on in so many communities are impacting children and teens is upstate child psychologist Dr. Ann Reagan. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reagan. Hi, thanks for having me. We often think about children being resilient, but during this protracted time of crisis, how long can we expect that resilience to last? Well, certainly we like to think of resiliency as a characteristic and a skill that stays with people over time, getting them through multiple difficult periods. It's not necessarily something that just poof goes away, but there are components that contribute to someone's resiliency that might need to be bolstered or re-examined if they are experiencing a prolonged crisis. Um, It's natural to see people who we think of as very resilient, like children, still struggle when exposed to prolonged stress or trauma crisis. Um, That doesn't mean they can't regain their resiliency or become more resilient in the future, especially using some of those difficult or traumatic experiences to bolster their resiliency in the future. Are you seeing patients who are struggling with the stress that you can tie to the pandemic or to the protests? So the protests are fairly new. The current state of protests um, are fairly new. So I've only had a few patients since that's all started. Um, You know, typically in reflecting on the past experiences and just again, a handful currently, um, the younger kids seem less aware or phased. Um, It's more so parents wondering how to talk to their young children about what's going on around them and or whether it's appropriate, depending on their developmental level. Um, So again, the younger children, it's more working with parents. Um, But with some of the older teenagers that I've seen more recently um, related to, again, the protests, it's more than wanting to process their own thoughts and experiences in a place that's private and not going to be Um, judged by friends or even family. So it's more for them um, going through their own experiences um, and trying to work through things that they're hearing, whether they agree or not agree, and knowing they have a safe place to say, I don't know how I feel about that um, without being judged. In terms of COVID, it's definitely been a while working with kids and it's mostly seeing um, changes in anxiety and just not knowing how to work with the unexpected. but most of it has been pretty manageable, to be honest. Well, can we talk about the signs of traumatic stress? Are there things that um, parents or caregivers should be alert for in, well, let's go through the different ages of childhood. Um, sure. Does, do things show up in babies under the age of two that, are, that should be concerning? So babies and under two is definitely a tough age. Um, to assess traumatic stress because you're working with kids that that don't have established sleep patterns, don't necessarily have established eating or feeding patterns. In older kids, those are some signs and and concerns. Um, I think with the babies and the younger kids, you're looking for changes in their ability to be soothed by a trusted caregiver, Um, you know, looking for 
um, transition objects or things that they've you know often relied on to help calm them down if they're no longer responsive to those types of objects or things, maybe a favorite show or a song, those might be some concerns um, in that younger age group. You know, you want to account for just general illness or teething or things that they can't communicate. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're having a traumatic response. So that's a, that's a little bit of a tough age group. But certainly, again, their response to soothing and caregivers. What about the kids that are a little older than that, that maybe do have an established eating pattern and maybe they're more mobile, they're moving around, walking around, the preschoolers, are there, um, sure. will they tell their parents that they're upset? So the younger kids, you know, language at two and three is, is definitely still developing, but it's there. Um, tantruming is normal for two, three, four-year-olds to an extent. So just because a child is having a tantrum, again, doesn't necessarily mean they're experiencing severe traumatic stress, but caregivers know their kids best. And so I think when you're looking at frequency or intensity of things like tantruming or getting upset about things, um, you know, five-year-olds, they may have a little bit of a distress tolerance for being told no or schedule changes and things like that. So if all of a sudden a child that used to be pretty flexible is no longer flexible and really responding negatively, um, those would, you know, potentially be signs for some um, traumatic stress. Um, again, at that age group, skipping a meal or, you know, just being less engaged one day, again, is not a significant sign, but you're looking for a pattern or a significant change in behavior. Um, now some, like some of that probably applies to the kids that are older, that the six to 12 year olds too, right? Sure. So again, yeah, like eating patterns and things like that certainly apply more to the six and 12 year olds. Um, language, the, the way that a six to 12 year old might refer to things, if it becomes negative or dark or hostile using some of that dark and hostile language, that would certainly be um, a concern. Um, you know, things like that, maybe becoming less excited about things that they enjoyed, activities, seeing peers, um, that age group, you know, that would be a concern. Teenagers, similar eating, sleeping patterns, definitely, um, if they were to stop eating or, or um, have a fear of falling asleep or be sleeping much more to maybe avoid having to think about things that make them upset becoming much more isolated or withdrawn, again, using maybe negative language about themselves or others or the way that they talk about their environment would be a concern. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with child psychologist, Dr. Ann Reagan. So what do you recommend parents and caregivers do to help kids if they see these signs of stress? At what point do they need to you know, seek some outside help? So the best thing we can do is talk to our kids. Parents are often scared they're going to say the wrong thing or by bringing it up or talking about it, you're going to make it worse. But we know that if a child is already thinking about something, it's the not talking about it that makes it seem taboo or that it's not okay that they're having those thoughts. So parents need to be able to talk to their kids. Um, giving concrete options or solutions if a child does communicate what their worries or concerns are, um, becoming more involved, just sitting down, doing crafts with younger kids or you know, developmentally appropriate activities with the younger kids. It's not a distraction, it's not covering it up, it's creating an opportunity to have a child open up and have a conversation. Um, and then same thing for the older kids. It's using an activity as a springboard and an opportunity to have the child feel like, I have my parents' attention right now, now's the time to maybe say something that I haven't wanted to say in the past. Um, and again, keeping it concrete, being supportive, letting them talk. A lot of times parents hear their child say one thing and then give lots of advice and give lots of their own experience. That's not necessarily what the kids or the teenagers wanna hear. They want an opportunity to, to express what their thoughts or concerns are and have someone listen. So talking and creating some one-on-one -on -one time um, is definitely helpful. What about, do you have any advice for how parents can help their children get a good night's sleep? Because I've talked to people about how important sleep is during times of sure. stress, but then of course, uh, you know, so many people are having trouble sleeping during times of stress. So 
what can they do to help kids kids sleep better? So consistency in sleep routines and patterns, nighttime routines um, is really, really important, especially with the younger kids, you know, even up to six or 10. Um, they need to know what to expect. They need to know when it's relaxation time, when it's going to be bath time. Um, with stress often comes changes in patterns and schedules and going different places unexpectedly. So um, keeping consistent with what the kids can expect can definitely help with that. And being somewhat flexible, you know, being consistent but flexible, maybe you need to add a nightlight or maybe you need to keep the door open when it was typically closed. Um, you know, those types of things. Again, asking the kids, what seems to make sleep difficult? What, you know, can we do? Let's try some different things and see if that helps. Well, school is wrapping up or has wrapped up for pretty much everyone, but the summer is not going to be like any previous summer that we've had, like in terms of camps, many of them are closed. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty about what's happening now, but also what's happening in the fall, whether school will be back in session, well, whether kids will still be home. What approach can parents take to help kids prepare for all of this uncertainty? Sure. So I, I know it's tough to do camps at home and things like that, especially with parents that are working. But if there is somebody that's at home, a caregiver, babysitter, um, or a parent that's able to create some fun opportunities for kids that might be similar to what they get at camp, whether it's a field trip to a park or a county beach or something like that, it's going to have to be thinking outside the box and creating some time for those activities um, that you might have not had to because the kids were at camp doing it with other people. Um, so, you know, still looking for fun opportunities to get the kids outside, fresh air, um, you know, in water, um, if possible, you know, just doing those things to keep them cool and having fun. And then maybe doing some school related activities that are just more entertaining for the summer science projects, doing a, you know, bottle rocket outside that's safe, of course, you know, fun activities that are going to keep the kids engaged, um, to still have some new experiences. Well, thank you so much to Upstate Child Psychologist, Dr. Ann Reagan. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Mourning and burial rituals are both personal and communal. I'd like to read three of our poets who gave us eloquent and powerful testimonies of this. First is Ginger Hanchi, who lectures at Baylor University in the English department. Close your eyes and envision the story she creates for us in her poem, floating circle. Five men jump into the water one after another after your ashes have been scattered there. They jump off the rail as if from a burning car, as if to heaven itself, each uncle, grandfather, father sprawling toward you, every muscle of every man in earnest. They each take their place in a floating circle. They say, you are not alone. We are here with you. They say, we contain you. Though you spilled from your body and now seep into the blue deeps, we will hold you within us. They say, our generations stretch your three years into something more like a lifespan. They say, we put points on these gulfs of sadness. We will connect the dots and try to see something recognizable. They say, We will rein in the expansiveness of grief that we swim in. Try not to drown. Five men jump into the water, fall like beautiful ashes. Next is Kaz Sussman, a poet and carpenter in Oregon, who gives us a poignant vision of those who are left behind in his poem, Through a Sky of Crimson Thread. We carry the survivors as best we can, wrapped in a shawl huge enough to hold the unsettled dreams of Chagall. Folk dancers huddle in the folds. Old men can be heard chanting. 
a mother's shin dangles from the spill, and bluefish sail through a sky of crimson thread among children trusting in the improbable. The barges of our hearts ferry the cobble together, one being of many beats. We carry the survivors as best we can, only later seeing we are the survivors we carry, and we are those left behind. And finally, poet Lisa Wiley, who teaches at SUNY Erie Community College, gives us a lighter moment somewhat of grief in her poem called Irish Wake. We hear hollering from the curb, clamor of a lawn fed erupts from the backyard. A banquet table beer game centers all the commotion, empty aluminum cans everywhere. The devout widow is up to bat, she aims her ping-pong ball at the red line of plastic red solo cups, making it to second, the crowd roars. Finally, they let loose after so many dark months of decline. Mr. Healy is in heaven now, safe at home. has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.